Hey there, folks. Welcome to episode 7 of A Pebble in a Pond podcast. John Steinbeck once said, If a story is not about the hearer, he or she will not listen. A great, lasting story is about everyone, or it will not last. The strange and foreign is not interesting, only the deeply personal and familiar. I'd always planned on making multiple episodes like this one. When I when I thought about the podcast, this is kind of what I originally envisioned. At some point in time, I'd like to do entire episodes of of uh, listener-submitted stories. Uh, we're still not there yet. They're still trickling in, but um, I really would like to be able to just sit here and tell people stories and anyone that heard the podcast would start to get a feel for the kind of people that were listening and the stories that they all had to tell. We're not there yet, but I am going to tell a few of my own stories of things that have happened in my life and uh, moments that changed me and the people involved forever. I also have a short story that was submitted uh, by somebody that listens to the podcast, apparently. Um, and I'm going to give that a quick read as well. Now, let me be really clear about this. Um, I, I had a lot to think about for this episode. And I was really, I, I even now I'm kind of going back and forth in my mind over the order that I want to tell these in and how exactly I want to do this. Um, because it really does matter how you format these stories but what I've decided to do is I'm going to start with a more serious and honestly kind of a disturbing story um uh, it's not one that I thinking about uh that I I don't think I've ever told anybody the entire story and um part of that is because uh I had kind of blocked out parts of it and it wasn't until a conversation just a few months ago that I started to remember like key pieces of it. And now I feel I feel like I have the whole story. I, I there may be some stuff that I'm still not able to remember, but um, I am going to do my best to tell this story because I know that it is a disturbing and unhappy story that ends um, in the best way possible. So uh, I'm going to warn everybody now that there could be, or there probably should be, a trigger warning um, for the first story that I'm going to tell. And that story will involve um, some some violence and um, an attempted, um, I guess I can say it on the podcast, right? I, I think it's uh, attempted rape um, and... Um, some underage drinking and possible drug use. Um, now that all sounds horrible when I say it all like that, but, um, trust me when I tell you, this is not, this is not a story that ends badly for everybody. So just, just trust me when I, when I tell you, you know, just suffer through the bad parts to get to the good part. Uh, it's all important. And, um, honestly, I feel good about telling the story. So, uh, then we're, like I said, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to read, a user-submitted story. It's a short one, but uh, it, it does have some meat to it. So 
I'll go ahead and read that, and then we'll talk about it real briefly, and then uh, we'll we'll finish up with a with a positive story, a happy story, um, and that's that's what we have. Uh, we're just we're just gonna do story time, and that's why the episode is called Story Time. So let's get started. Okay, so how do we start the first story? I guess um, I guess we start near the beginning. If some of you have arrived here from TikTok, uh, then you'll know that I've told a story um, that that will that kind of ties into this on TikTok. Um, this is a, about a particular point in my life um, that I am at the same time very proud of but also um very regretful of and you're gonna you're gonna understand that pretty quickly here when i was i don't even really know the particular age range but let's just say 20-ish or young 20 early 20 um my friend and i well actually my two friends and i um were very very much um driven by thoughts of justice and um you know stopping crime and things like that now part of it was you know we were still coming out of our kid phase where we had all wanted to be superheroes but other parts of it were um where we grew up and how we grew up it wasn't hard you know we grew up in the suburbs but we saw a lot of the kind of the way that some people would just get away with so much and other people, you know, would have their entire lives ruined by a simple mistake. And it just didn't, it just didn't sit right. You know, we went to a relatively affluent high school and there were, there were kids that would literally walk through the high school halls selling drugs to teachers and nobody would say anything. And nobody would stop them. And then at the same time, you know, there would be a kid that would be caught with a bag of pot and he would be expelled. And it just didn't make sense. Uh, it really, you know, at the time, it really bothered us a lot. It bothered, it still bothers me to this day to, to just see how um, unfair the system seemed to be to a lot of people. And how so, some people just got away with whatever they wanted to. So this all kind of culminated. In, well, there were a lot of things that we did. I have I have stories that I could tell for days about uh, that and different things that we did to try to, uh, I guess, meet out our own justice, if you will. But it ends with uh, us joining the Guardian Angels uh, in the city that we live in. The downtown there was a downtown chapter of the Guardian Angels. For those that, that aren't aware of what the Guardian Angels are, and I don't know if too many people listening to this 
are painfully unaware of that, but uh, the guardian angels are a group of, um, they called us visual deterrence. That's what, that's what we were. Uh, we were a group of people that uh, started in New York City and I would say the name of the guy that started it and all that stuff, but there's just no reason to get into that because he's kind of a jerk. So, um, I mean, allegedly, obviously. Um, but uh, I I had joined this, this group because I had seen them out in the streets and I had heard about them and I read about them and I decided that if I couldn't, if I couldn't go you know, put on a mask and be a superhero that at the very least I could, I could go help somebody. And I knew that that's what they were trying to do. You know, they were trying to weed out some of the drug problems. They were trying to help people that needed it. They were trying to, you know, in general, just clean up the city a little bit uh, and do, do it in a way that was, you know, uh, positive. Um, it was, it was not a, I guess you could say it was a little bit of a shock once once my friends and I joined because you know in your head you get this kind of romanticized idea of what these you know crime stoppers are like and when you get into you know when the first time you roll up to to meet them all is the middle of a park and they've got a, a literal just a rope on the ground like set up as your your sparring area and there's just, uh, you know, it, 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 it was literally the most ragtag collection of people you could imagine. And one thing that, that I would like to point out is that when we trained, the man that trained us was a former Marine. And um, he took it very seriously. And I, at the time, I didn't really understand it. Now, uh just just as a side note here before I continue with that uh it's important to understand that um when I was I want to say 10 10 or 11 uh I started taking kung fu now the particular form of kung fu that I took was not one that could be competitive uh it, you couldn't enter into tournaments because you you didn't learn how to you know fight for points you learned how to fight for real so a lot of the stuff that I, I learned to do were throat strikes and eye strikes and, you know, sweeping people's legs out and things like that. Like, it's just not stuff that you, you did in tournaments. So I never really got into that part of the martial arts community. I was just learning how to fight. And then we moved away a couple of years later. And when I, when I moved, the interest was still there. The, the desire was still there, but I was nervous and anxious about meeting new people and things like that. So it took me some years after that to kind of get my bearings and get, you know, understood what I was doing. And then I started to, um, I started to meet some people that were doing some martial arts and some people that, you know, I ended up, I ended up hooking up with people that were actually very well known and I'm not going to name names here, but very well known in the martial arts community. And, uh, I ended up, you know, going and doing some of their classes and some of their camps and things like that. And it really did uh, encourage a spark in me to continue to learn to fight and, and to take care of myself. Um, 
So I, I have a little bit of a background. Now, obviously, I don't have the background of a Marine who's training people how to fight, uh, which just ties us back to the original story again. But I, I, did, I did know how to fight. Um, so when we show up at the very first meeting, um, I, I wasn't completely out of my element. I now granted, like I said, I hadn't done tournament fighting, but I, I had done fighting. Like I had learned to fight. Um, so when we get in and we, we, they give us some gloves and some headgear and we get in and we start fighting, you know, sparring it with each other. This is the first time that like, we literally like show up, introduce ourselves and just start fighting each other. That's, that's, that's how that start story starts really. It's just us fighting each other. And, uh, and one of the things that uh, I learned very quickly um, is that I can really take a punch. I really, really can take a punch. And I don't mean just one. I mean, I get into the, the ring, I say with quote, quote fingers. Um, like I said, it's just a rope on the ground. And I get in and we stand there and uh, I start sparring with this Marine. And... He just obliterates me, but I don't fall down. I mean, he he hits me probably six times right across the head, but I don't fall down. And uh, I'm not really able, I'm not fast enough at the time to really return any punches. I'm just guarding myself. And so he starts to punch, you know, he starts to try to get in and st start trying to work my body a little bit and trying to... You know, he wants me to fall. He wants me to fall down. He He's trying to, I guess that's the Marine in him trying to break me, trying to, you know, make me fall down. And I just, I he just couldn't do it. And I just sat there and I took every punch that he had. And I couldn't, I like I said, I couldn't really return. Uh, I couldn't really uh, counter punch because he was just too fast for me. But um, I knew that, I also knew that he couldn't knock me down. I knew that he was never going to get me down. So that was kind of the the start of what people started to know about me. Like that's that was so nobody had ever stood in the ring with him. Nobody had ever stayed up. Nobody. Uh, and that goes back to his when he was active military. This is a guy that that knew how to fight. This was a guy that knew how to kill. And even he said afterwards, you know, nobody's ever stood up for as long as you did against me. He's like, I don't know, I don't know what you did. I don't know if it was, you know, your headgear was on wrong or, and you just couldn't feel the punches, but nobody's ever stayed up. And, you know, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that I don't feel pain. Getting hit by that guy hurt. But I just knew that if I fell, that people would, I guess I shouldn't say I knew that. I thought that. I thought that if I fell, that people would think less of me. And the idea that, you know, these people that I just met and these people that I was trying to, you know, be on their team and join up, um, the idea that they would think less of me, uh, was enough to just, I would, I would have ran through a wall at that point in time and there wasn't going to be much of anything that was going to stop me. So as, as you know, that's the, that's the start of the story. And that's I, the reason I wanted to bring that up. You'll, you'll see, uh, I'm, I've always been pretty resilient. I've been always had a decent amount of endurance. And uh, not endurance in the sense that I can run far distances for a long period of time, not that kind of endurance, but endurance in the sense that I can 
I can really take a punishment. Um, so as time goes on, uh, we end up patrolling and joining, joining and patrolling and doing all the things. And we, at first we just went downtown and we just, uh, wandered around on the streets and on nights like Fridays and Saturday nights and things like that. But as we, as we kind of branched out, we, people started to recognize us, people started to know us. And so as we branched out, uh, we started to go into some of the worst and worst parts of the city. One in particular patrol point that we would have is my partner and I, which everybody had a partner. Now this, the, my partner was not one of my friends. Uh, my friends partnered up on their own, the, the other two guys that joined with me that they have their own stories. And I joined up with a, one of the other guys. Now the guy that was my partner, I won't say his name because his, his, we, we all had street names. We all had call signs basically. And his call sign was actually his last name. So, uh, I'm not going to say his name, but, um, we will, I will tell you that his, his, uh, his name was Mike. So Mike and I, um, uh, we, uh, we would, we were partners and we were in pretty much constant contact with each other. This was, um, this was when beepers were really popular. Uh, we, he had a cell phone, uh, but I, I did not. And so I just had a, a pager and he used to hit me on that pager like multiple times a day with like all sorts of cryptic, uh, number messages and things like that, that I'd have to decipher. Um, but he and I used to patrol out at a club. Now, this was not a club that was downtown. This this club was uh, a little ways removed from downtown. But it had become synonymous with um, sexual assault cases and rapes. And um, what would happen was these, these club organizers would have a... They had a night where it was 17 and up. Uh with ID, but nobody ever checked the ID. And so you'd get these girls that were 15 and 16 that were showing up and going to this club. Um, you know, obviously for a lot of girls that are 15, they look 17, they look 25. And, you know, it's just, it's just a matter of, you know, how they do their makeup and how time has, you know, affected them. So, a lot of a lot of those situations ended really badly because these were young young girls that were showing up to go to a club and didn't have the the wherewithal and the understanding of what they were walking into now you do that a couple of nights and sooner or later that's going to start to draw the predators the men that are there to take advantage of that now those men you know some of those men were there all the time but but a lot of them when they when when they started to realize what the club was doing and what the club was promoting, it it proliferated in a way that was not just disturbing, but, um, you know, the quote from Star Wars, you'll never find a more wretched hive of scum and villainy. Well, that's kind of what this club was like. So, with that in mind, um, I want to say that we per- patrolled on uh, Tuesdays and Thursdays primarily, they had uh, the the club had a, did a decent job of keeping off duty police people there, um, on like Friday and Saturday, which could, those are the big like normal club at nights. So, 
Uh, they did a good job of keeping that patrolled there. But during those weekdays where they would have, and these were school nights too, keep that in mind. So you've got 15, 16-year-old girls going out on school nights. Um, not that you know I care that much about school nights, but I'm just saying that's something, you know, something to keep in mind is how scummy these promoters were. But uh, Mike and I, we used to go out there on, of our own volition. This was not something that was like a... a guardian angel sanctioned patrol necessarily i mean it was because our leader knew that we were doing it but it was also not like like the whole team wasn't out there it was just mike and i and we did it kind of as you know a volunteer service really we were just going out there because the cops weren't out there so uh in that period of time it was probably a uh i want to say a 10 month period of time that we patrolled there um i saw I saw a lot. I experienced a lot. I am not going to lie to you and tell you that uh, most of, mo- let's let's put it this way, most of the memories of that, uh, those interactions are um, disturbing to me. Uh, I saw women at their absolutely most terrified at the worst point in of their life, and the only thing that stopped it from for at least nine women, the only thing that stopped it from becoming the actual worst moment of their entire existence was me and my partner. And I know that. Um, now the story I'm going to tell you here is, um, I guess you could say nine and a half. And this is the story of the half. And it's like I said, this is not a great story to tell, uh, but it is a story that has a happy ending. So just just stay with me. I know I've had a long uh, intro to this, but I wanted to make sure that you had context for what I was doing and why I was there. So we're going <laughs> to... I'm going to set this up here, and uh, then we'll get to the, the part that I, I know is going to be a little disturbing. So this was a Thursday night, and uh, Mike and I had been out on patrol. Now, when I say we'd been out on patrol... Uh, at this place, basically the club was set inside of a strip mall, and the the nights that they would do their big events and you know the weekends and things like that, this this the parking lot of the strip mall would fill with cars, and I mean this is a large parking lot and it was completely full of cars. This place was was just killing it. They just were making so much money because they were the only club in town that was doing these like underage nights basically. Now, I you know, just saying that, uh, especially now in today's world, gives me a, like, visceral ick feeling. Um, but this was, you know, this was back then, and, and that's what people did. Uh, that's what some, you know, some clubs at least thought it was a good idea to have an underage night. So Mike and I had been out patrolling for, I would say, probably about an hour. Um, we got there uh, right around... I think it was about 9 p.m. Uh, it could have been a little bit earlier because we, we wanted to get set up. And uh, usually we would get there and we would set up a, uh, a patrol point. We would start um, from basically just outside of the, the entrance of the club. The, the club owners knew we were out there. So we would start just outside the entrance of the club. And we would keep, like, we had our, a couple of radios and we had, like, bottles of water and stuff like that, like refills and stuff that we would set up there so that we could you know, we would basically do a couple of laps and then we would, uh, go there. 
and replenish or take a break or whatever for a few minutes. Uh, so we would set up our, our, our patrol point and then we would, um, we would basically just start patrolling. Now, what was interesting about this, and I know that this is, a, you know, maybe this is too much information for some folks, but uh, what's interesting about it is that we would, like, if we were patrolling in a city street, we would just walk down the sidewalk. And the whole point was for us to be visually there and people see us and know that we were essentially, as they called us, vigilantes and not to, you know, not to do stuff. Don't do the crime, right? Like, you see the people there to stop the crime, don't do the crime. But uh, we were, um, in this case, we weren't we weren't necessarily trying to be visual deterrence. Um, we we understood w- the people that we were dealing with, right? Right? Like, they're these are these are men that are, you know, they're not they're not going to stop their behavior because they see a couple of dudes in red berets walking around. That's just not how these these kind of men work. So we weren't so much there to be visual deterrence. We were still wearing our you know our shirts and our berets and everything. And we were still there to be prominent, um, but we weren't. We also weren't trying to be prominent. We knew that uh, these men were, you know, scumbags. They were sneaky, and uh, they would get these girls out in their cars and, you know, do whatever they wanted with them. So uh, we we were actively trying to, you know, essentially hunt. I mean, I hate to use that word, but that's what we were doing. We were trying to find these people. We're trying to find these men that were doing these things. And so we would oftentimes, we would split up, but we would always maintain visual contact. We would, we would see each other, and we would basically comb through rows of cars. And, you know, there were plenty of nights. We did this for, like I said, like 10 months. Uh, there were plenty of nights where we never found anything. Uh, there was, you know, it was everything for the most part was on the up and up, or we just had really poor timing. Uh, but there were also plenty of nights where we we did find stuff. And, and this particular night, um, like I said, we got there around 9.30. Uh, we'd been there about an hour. The underage stuff uh, usually went for about two and a half hours. They usually wrapped it up uh, around 11, 11.30. Um, so uh, people would, you know, start to file out into the parking lot around... Well, I guess not all people, but a good portion of the people, the, the underage crowd and stuff like that, uh, would would file out um, around midnight. They'd all be going to their cars. Now, here's one of the really scummy things about these promoters that, that I actually just thought of, is that these were underage nights, but they were only underage for girls. So if you were 17, which meant 15 or 16, um, if you were 17 and, and a girl, you could get in for free. Obviously, they didn't serve you drinks. Um, I don't think they even served alcohol those nights, which is one of the ways that guys would get girls into their cars. They would, you know, tell them, "Oh, I've got some something to drink in the car," and the girls would go out there to drink with them. Um, but um, they, you, it wasn't it wasn't open for young men, right? Like, so you had to be twenty one and up to to be a man to get in. Uh, it wasn't it wasn't even eighteen and up. It was 21 and up to go hang out with 15-year-old girls. That's how scummy these people were. And what what's so disturbing about it was, like I said already, these parking lots were full of cars. And what's even worse about it now that I really am thinking about it is, what kind of parent drops your daughter off there? 
Like, who thinks that's okay? Like, I know that this was a different time, but even, even like, I lived through it. I don't know. Maybe it's just me. I, I, I couldn't have done that. Uh, if, it, if it had been my daughter, I couldn't have dropped her off there. Right. But then I kind of saw what was happening there. So, so anyway, we had been there about an hour. We knew that they were going to be, people were going to start filing out. You know, we had about an hour and a half or so before people started filing out. So uh, we were midway through a patrol. Now, it's hard for me to really describe the uh, parking lot and the way it was set up uh, this way. I would have to draw it out, and it's not really worth it. But uh, there was basically a building that was in the middle of the parking lot. And at the time, it was, I think it was a, I want to say like a uh, auto shop of some sort. Uh, but anyway, the behind the building was one of the places where we would most often find people uh, fooling around. Now, here's a little insight into the mind of some of these sickos. Uh, they intentionally would go to this place because they knew the people that were legitimately, like, you know, adults would go fool around behind this building. And they knew that if they were just back there with these girls and the girl, they could get the girls high enough or drunk enough that the girls wouldn't, you know, any of their their protestations would not be necessarily thought of as anything out of the ordinary because that's where people were going to fool around. So these, these, these guys, these were like, I mean, these weren't smart guys, but they were, they were literal predators, right? Like they knew what they were doing. They were going there to take advantage of young girls, uh, in, you know, a situation that these girls should never have been in because of these promoters. So, as we get through this particular night on the patrol, we start to get back to where this uh, this area is behind this building. Now, it's really important to understand. The reason I tell you all that is because we knew that people legitimately went, went back there to fool around after going to the club, you know. Everybody's dressed sexy. Everybody's, and, you know, we're not trying to stop people from having a good time. We're not, that's not what we were there for. We were there to protect people. And so we had to be very careful um, in this particular area because it would be, would have been just catastrophic if we would have busted up people that were legitimately just doing the do, um, and, you know, started to, to rough up some guy that was, you know, him and his girlfriend were just having a good time. Like that would have been catastrophic for us. That That's not something that we could have ever allowed. So we had to be very careful and not only that, but you know, we, we also didn't want to be creeps. You know, these are people that are making out in their cars that are getting pretty hot and heavy in their cars. And we didn't want to be the guys that were like creeping around the, the cars, like looking in windows and stuff. So we had to be very careful in this, this scenario. So what we would often do is Mike would go around one way and I would go around the other way and we would just stand on the corners of the building. Um, we could still see each other, but it was, you know, it was probably, I would say, uh, 50 yards maybe, uh, wide and we would we would stand and we would just kind of you know scan the cars that were parked there and obviously you know without getting too graphic uh you know some cars were a rocking so um we didn't you know this like i said this happened multiple nights and this wasn't a big deal to us this was something that we were used to seeing and something that we knew we had to tread carefully with one of the things that we had learned and this was after a few other s scenarios that i won't get into now but uh, one of the things that we had learned was, uh, in general, couples, 
used the back seat. Uh, people that didn't know each other used the front seat. So uh, I know that's that's a kind of a weird thing to think about, but but if you're comfortable and you know you're going to go back there and do what you're going to do, you want to be as you know you want to have as much room as you possibly can, I guess. And uh, and so they, they couples would just be like, all right, let's jump in the back seat. And people that didn't know each other, people that were uncomfortable with each other, they would sit in the front seat. And that's one of the ways that we had kind of figured out to tell like what to look for. So on this night, uh, I'm standing on, on the right side of the building. I look over and Mike motions to me that he thinks he sees something. So, um, I, I'm sorry if I'm a little, if I stammer a little bit, this is kind of like, it's rushes back to me when I, when I start talking about it. So he motions that he sees something and, um, I start to head towards him. Uh, but like I said, being careful not to intimidate or scare anybody that may be, you know, legitimately there to just have a good time. And, um, I see the car that he's, he's pointing to and it's, uh, I, I'm really not good with cars. I'm really not. Um, I know that it was a red, um, like with chipped paint on the front end. Uh, I'll say like a Pontiac of some sort. Let, I mean, don't be mad at me, car makers. I don't, I don't remember. Um, but you could see this girl in the front seat and there was a dude in in the driver's side and uh, she was, I want to say, she wasn't completely out cold, but she was not, she was not aware. She was not, you know, she didn't have her, her awareness and her faculties about her. She was obviously very messed up and he was leaning over towards her. I, you couldn't see what he was doing, but he was obviously touching her in some way. So, um, we sat for a few moments, uh, not even, not even a minute, but it seemed like a long time to us. And, uh, we sat and we just observed because once again, we didn't want to bust in on anybody that was legitimately having a, a good time. And what was really surreal about this moment was that he was parked at the end of this row of cars and, um, the right next to him, the car literally right next to him was shaking, was bouncing. Um, it was, it was, it was really funny now that I think about it, just the image of it. Um, but, uh, obviously what was happening was not funny, but, but the, the image of this guy and then the car next to him, just like basically lifting off its tires from its shaking. Um, somebody was having a very good night that night. Um, anyway, so we, um, we moved, well, kind of a pincer movement around the front of the car. I was on the, the driver's side and uh, Mike was on the passenger side and the guy was completely oblivious to us even existing at that point in time. He was completely focused on this girl. So as I moved, I was standing to where I was a little bit behind the, the driver's side door to where I could open the door and get out of the way if I needed to. And so Mike used, we used to carry large, uh, like mag light flashlights. And so Mike takes his flashlight out and taps on the window on the, pa the passenger side window. And the guy jumps and the girl kind of like 
she he 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 tapped loud and it was right next to her head so she kind of starts to kind of wake up and she's blurry eyed and and she starts to cover herself uh, this guy had started to take her top off and uh you know who knows what else but uh so she starts to cover herself she wasn't showing anything but you could tell that her her top was loose and um so um mike uh asks the guy to roll down the window and uh the car was on so the guy if the guy had really wanted to he could have just taken off i mean he could have tried but um so mike asked the guy to roll down the window and the guy's like you know who are you i'm not rolling down the freaking window and um so mike's like you know please please sir roll down the window please you know we're just trying to check make sure everybody's having a good time and what was interesting is the car next to us that was doing all the rocking had actually stopped so they they got a show um (laughs) so um mike i'm I'm trying to remember exactly the order of the, the the phrasing here but mike basically tells the guy you know you need to you need to open the the window or i'm gonna break the window in and the guy's like, you know, you don't you touch my car and blah, blah, blah. Well, this guy still hasn't recognized the fact that I'm there. So I very deliberately and trying to be as careful and cautious as I can, put my hand in the door handle to lift it and it, the door wasn't locked. So I'm able to just lift the door and I don't open it. I just have the door. So I, I, I give Mike a head nod to let him know that I have, um, position basically. And so Mike taps again, really, really hard and you almost, almost hard enough to break the glass, uh, you know, and tells the guy, you know, you need to, you need to open the window or step out of the car. And it's becoming very obvious. I couldn't see her, but according to Mike, um, it's becoming very obvious. This girl had no idea where she was she was completely and totally, um, uh, you know, she was grabbing clothes, uh, and, and like putting things over her and, uh, was scared, like immediately scared. did not, did not know what was going on. So, uh, oh, sorry. I just, (laughs) just thinking about it just makes me so angry. Um, so, uh, Mike tells this guy, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to bust in the window and the guy goes to like, he, he's leaning, like looking out the passenger window. And when Mike raps on the, on the, the window, the guy turns and starts to engage the car. Like he's going to take off. So I already had the door open. So I open up the door. I grabbed the guy. He didn't have a seatbelt on obviously. So I just grabbed the guy and I go to pull him out. Well, and this is where the, the, the training montage that you imagined earlier came in. Um, the guy is in a really odd position because I'm, I'm basically standing behind and to his left. And as I grab him, he uh, turns and starts to swing his arm. I, I don't imagine he knew I was there, and I don't know who he thought he was swinging at, but I, I promise you he didn't think it was me. And... Uh, so I'm grabbing him to pull him out of the car. And that's when I realized that it wasn't her top. I mean, her top was off, but she was, she was basically naked from like the down, uh, from the top down. Um, and she had, you know, this guy had been taking advantage over this whole time and she was out like she'd had no concept of it. So she's 
you know, trying to cover herself up and put whatever clothes she can find on. She couldn't find, you know, her underwear and things like that, but she was trying to cover herself because there's just two men now or, or assaulting them. And so I grab this guy and I'm pulling him out and I'm, I'm kind of stunned because I, you know, that's not something you expect to see when you open the car door. So this guy hits me and he, he, he got me real good right across the, the lower, my lower left jaw. He was swinging with his right hand and he hit me right along lower left jaw. If, if I hadn't been somebody that could take a punch, this would have knocked me out. I, I know it would have. It was, it definitely rung my bell. I could hear my, like literally you can hear when you, I don't know if you've ever been punched or not, but when you get punched across the face or in the jaw, you, it makes your ears ring. And I, immediately that's what I'm hearing. And so he starts wailing on the side of my head, but after the first punch, I was able to get my head down. So he's basically hitting me, and uh, I just <laughs> I just moved my head away from the mic when I said that. Uh, <laughs> it's funny. Um, he's hitting me in the top of the head, which does nothing. Like it's, it doesn't. There's no point in that. So he's just hitting him, hitting his fist on my skull, which you know, I'm sorry for your fist, buddy. But in general, something that you need to understand from this point is that in general, if somebody starts striking at me or anybody, uh, that, that gives me fair game, right? Like I, I can, I can respond. Now I'm not in a position to be able to do anything. I'm just pulling this guy out of the car. So I pull him out. I finally get him out. It's, it's kind of tough. He's, he's not big, but he's, you know, a little bit stronger than I am. And so he, he kind of comes out of the car and, and I'm, I'm, his feet are still in the car, but I'm pulling him. So he kind of doesn't have the ability to catch his feet and he full, uh, falls out and actually falls into the car that was rocking. Um, and I don't, I don't want this guy to get his bearings. I don't want him to be able to stand on his feet. I don't want him to be able to, you know, hit me anymore. So realizing that he's starting to fall, I, stomp on the back of his ankle um as somebody who's dealt with a broken ankle uh i from from the that point on i i've always thought of uh whenever i've gotten into any sort of physical altercations i've i've, I've always thought of take their ankles take you know take take them out of there because i know what it's like it's you know there's nothing that will affect your mind more than not being able to move your ankle um so I stomp on his ankle. Now, obviously, this is extremely painful. I didn't break anything, but it, you know, it's it hurts real bad. And so this guy can't get up. Now, it's important to understand, not only has he, you know, assaulted me multiple times. Now, granted, I was grabbing him out of his car, but uh, I knew, like, I knew what had happened. There's no way that this girl was aware of what had happened to her. And this guy had got some sort of drug in her. And was taking advantage of her. So I, I didn't, there was no, there was not even a second of doubt. I knew exactly what I was doing. And I knew exactly who this guy was. And I knew exactly what he had been doing to this girl. And so I never, I never, there was never a moment where I hesitated. Or I thought, oh, this guy doesn't deserve this. So this is where it gets a little graphic. And I, I want to make sure that I warn everybody. Because this is, um, you know, more graphic than before. So, um... So he screams a little bit and, you know, like kind of grunts and starts to stand up. 
and then he this happened all the time like these guys when you would catch them doing these things they go from being you know billy badass where they're taking advantage of 15 year old girls and they think they're you know don juan casanova um to just you know not really crying but they they realize that they're caught right like like it's kind of like the the chris hansen you know stuff where these guys start they start like blubbering well this guy didn't quite get there yet he he was indignant and he just started saying like just really horrible shit like you know oh this this and i'm i'm just gonna say the stuff he said please please don't be upset but uh and he's like, oh, that bitch deserves it. Oh, she she loved it. Oh, she, you know. And he's saying all this stuff, you know, like almost bargaining with me. Like, like I don't, what did, I don't, I don't know what saying this kind of stuff is supposed to do, like, to save his ass at that point in time. But, uh, you know, that that wasn't that wasn't the way to go. So he starts saying, you know, oh, she she loved it, or she she was, you know, this and that, and talking about her, how she, I don't, I don't want to say it. He was saying some really crude, horrible stuff. And so I told him, I, you know, at this point in time, I basically, I'm, I'm standing, uh, holding him so that he's not, uh, bashing his head against the, the car next to me. And I've got him from behind, like I've, I've his, but his leg is behind me. And I've got my, my foot on it and he's just, he's kind of looking up at me and, um, at this point in time, Mike is starting to, uh, he has opened up the other door or I guess she may have opened it. I, I didn't see. Um, and he's starting to check on her and make sure she's secure and, you know, talk, try to talk to her. And, um, so I'm, I'm basically on my own with this guy and I don't know what's going on in this other car. It stopped rocking. They're just getting a front row seat to an ass whooping. Um, so, uh, this guy's talking to me, looking straight up at me and um he i I couldn't i I saw his left hand because i i had his i was on his left side and i i saw his uh i saw his left hand but i couldn't see his right hand and i i you know i was on his ankle so he wasn't going anywhere so as i'm you know as he's saying this stuff i see him kind of twist his body kind of twists in a weird way and i don't know if i I wouldn't say I was trained for this. I wouldn't say that I necessarily expected it. I just had a feeling, I guess you could say. And um, in that feeling, uh, like I said, I was I was holding his, his left shoulder so I could see his left arm, and I was holding him back so that with my foot on his ankle. So uh, I'm trying to describe this so that you can kind of imagine it a little bit better. But um, he had a knife, and I, I, I don't, I didn't see it. I didn't even think about it but he had a knife uh i don't know if it was in his belt or if his pocket or what the situation was but he did have a knife and and as i kind of anticipated it he reaches you know he he, i see his body twist i anticipate whatever he's doing and he pulls the knife out and he kind of goes up over his like in an arcing motion over his own right shoulder and he's basically trying to stab me in the face with this knife it wasn't a big knife it was like a pocket knife but uh, he's he's coming up in this like arcing motion over his own head and shoulder, and uh, I the only thing I knew to do was just get out of the way, right? Like I don't I'm not gonna try to stop him with a knife in his hand, so I just let him go, 
And because I was on his ankle and he was trying to, you know, move and get up, he couldn't and he just fell right into the car. And uh, he, he hits his face and, you know, that wrenches his body a little bit so he can't. But he's uh, he's also now moving in a way that I can't really stand on his ankle. So I, I move and he starts to get up. And he, he has this knife in his hand. And I see him start to get up and he's like, he's he's kind of on all fours but but getting up so I just did the only thing I knew to do when I essentially tackled him um up against this this person's car and um I I don't know I don't know what happened really uh I don't really remember the series of events after that um I kind of blanked out and uh I do know that um he still had the knife in his hand and he was trying his best to get me with it. And, uh, I was able to disable his, his right, right arm. And, um, I just hit him and I, I kept hitting him. And I, it was, it was the, one of the only times that I remember in, in that entire period where I, I kind of lost myself. And that's one of the reasons why I tell you that this story is disturbing to me is because I did, I did lose my, I did lose my temper. Uh, I lost my, my ability to kind of, uh, call myself a protector because at that point in time, I just wanted this guy to feel pain. So, uh, I'm going to spare the details from this point on, on, on what happened to this guy, but let's, I will say that he did end up having to go to the hospital. Um, he did end up having um, to have uh, some reconstructive surgery uh, on his face. Um, I'm not, like I said, this is not something I'm proud of, and this is not something that I'm telling. I don't story. I, I don't tell this to sound like a like I'm some sort of big badass. I wish that I never had to do any of this stuff. I I never would have wanted to do that, but. I just kept thinking about the state this girl was in. And like I said, you know, we had, we had saved a couple of different girls at that point in time. We'd been out there and we'd, you know, we'd, but they were always, this was always a situation where we'd walk up on them and they were struggling. You know, this was a fight. And, um, this was a situation where this was the first situation where I knew we had gotten there too late. Like this guy had definitely done something to this girl. And, uh, I was just so angry. I was so, I felt like a failure because I, I, we weren't there in time. And it, it, it's really hard to think about and to talk about because while there's nothing I could have done to change it unnecessarily, you know, we, we got there when we got there and there was nothing I could have done to be there sooner. Um, it's really hard to know that, you know, had I, had I been there, you know, 10 minutes earlier, it wouldn't have happened. So anyway, um, Mike had been attending to her. Her name was, well, I don't want to say her name. <laughs> um, let's call her Amber. Let's call her, her name was Amber. Let's say that. Um, uh, I have to pause recording for a second. Mm, sorry about that. That little weird edit there. I just, that was a little, that was a little rough. Um, 
Amber didn't remember any of it. Amber doesn't, uh, well, she did end up, uh, some years later. Um, anyway, so Mike takes her, we, we were able to get some of her clothes on, we're able to get her, we have, uh, some blankets that, uh, I, I ran back to the, um, to the, um, the club, sorry, and, uh, got a blanket for her, and this actually, what's crazy about it is that this spot that these guys would go to, uh, that these couples would go to, was not that far from the entrance, it was, you know, maybe another 50 yards to the entrance, so they didn't go very far to, I didn't have to run very far, uh, so I run, run over, grab a blanket, we get her wrapped up, we get her, we call the cops, the cops come out, bring out an ambulance, end up filing multiple police reports over multiple inc- incidences that have happened now, um, so I said this story had a happy ending and I'm getting to that now. Um, so this guy ends up going to, um, hospital. Like I said, he had to have, uh, multiple surgeries. Uh, the happy ending part of it is that, well, there's two happy endings really. It's that this guy actually had, uh, multiple, um, uh, warrants out for his arrest for sexual assault and for uh, alleged rape. Apparently his uh, then, well, I guess she was his ex-girlfriend at that point in time, had filed multiple police reports. And th- I mean, if there's nothing else that infuriates you in this whole story, this should be the thing. Um, th- she had filed multiple police reports and nothing had been done to stop this guy, but she had she had literally complained multiple times that this guy had you know, raped her and, and had, 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 uh, brutalized her and nobody had done anything. Nobody had stopped him. The cops didn't do anything. So in this one moment, I beat the living piss out of this guy and get him where they can catch him. And they're like, oh yeah, he, we have multiple complaints and multiple warrants out for this guy's arrest. So that's one, one good thing. This guy actually went to jail for life. Uh, as far as I know, he's still in jail. And uh, because he had so many, and they were, these were all like provable offenses. Like these weren't, these weren't like he said, she said things. These are like, he had multiple witnesses, multiple women that came forth. And, and this, this actually went on for some, like, I want to say like a year and a half afterwards where they were still finding evidence of this guy. Uh, I wouldn't say he was a serial rapist, but he was, you know, this was something that he had done multiple, multiple times. And there were girls that, uh, that would come forth that, that had actually been assaulted by him in that parking lot that we were in. And, you know, like before we ever started patrolling there, the, he was doing this. So that's one good thing is that we were able to get this guy, uh, the life that he deserved. Um, and I, I hope that it was awful and I don't regret, I don't regret any of the pain that I caused this man. Um, I regret that I lost, I lost my temper and that I let, I let it get the best of me. But I know that in the end, what I did is the reason why he wasn't able to hurt anybody else. So the other good thing about it was, um, this girl, <laughs> I almost said her name, uh, Amber, um, she stayed in contact with Mike and I, and her and Mike actually became very, very close. Um, they didn't, it wasn't like that. They didn't have a relationship or anything, but he basically started to mentor her. She was, uh, 16 and, um, 
she had gone to the club. Uh, her parents had dropped her and her friend off, and her friend had left her. Um, her friend, there were two guys uh, that came up and started hitting on her friend, and her friend left her. And so she was kind of a wallflower, and she didn't feel very pretty, and she all of these different things that kind of are the ultimate recipe for a predator. And um, he, this guy saw her and knew who she was and knew what he was looking for and got her. And, um, you know, we know how it ended. But um, I, I'm not going to lie to you and tell you that I ever really understood exactly what happened to her that night. Um, I, Mike and her were very close. And I know, I'm sure she told Mike uh, what she could remember. But I, I don't know. I don't know what exactly happened. I don't know what this guy did to her. And honestly, I don't know if I want to know. Um, but I do know that, you know, she went on. Uh, she had to go through lots of therapy. And like I said, Mike ended up mentoring her and actually teaching her how to fight. Um, he actually... Uh, trained her for a few years. Um, Mike had a uh, very serious girlfriend at the time, and they lived together. And this girl ended up uh, basically like coming over to Mike's house and having like the, his girlfriend and him. They would make dinner and they would s train and do all this stuff. And uh, it's actually, you know, despite how dark that story starts, it's actually a very very good ending because. Uh, and this is, I haven't heard about any of that for literally years now. It's been at least 15 years since I heard from them, but, um, well, 12 years, 12 years. Um, but, uh, uh, last I heard Mike and her were still in contact. She had, um, she had started a job at a, a doctor's office or a dentist's office. And I'm not sure which, but, uh, she was she was doing really well she had you know had a re relatively high paying job and was um you know she was still in therapy and she was still going through she still had a lot of issues like i guess her her family life was not great and that's one of the reasons why she ended up in this club was you know her mom just was an absentee mother just did whatever but with with mike's help and with my help a little bit um this girl ended up having what last i heard a very very good life and was able to take that one moment that could have turned into the darkest thing that had ever happened to her and maybe very quite possibly could have been um but that was able to be transformed uh by the actions of my partner and I on that in that evening and the last thing I'll say about this is I'm I'm not really proud to look back on the violence that came with what I did, but I am extremely proud of the fact that for that entire period of my life, when these women or girls uh, would be at their worst point, when they were, there was not, there was not a face that they could have seen a man's face that they could have seen that they would have been happy about. I know that in those moments that my face and the actions that I took 
re- renewed some of their faith and made them feel better. And if I have nothing else to take with me to the grave, it's that for those nine and a half women, um, I was the difference and I was the face and they found comfort knowing that I was there to protect them. And that means everything to me. And that is the essence of what I want to do here. I want to help people and I want to protect people. I want, I want the world to be a better place and I want people to be more involved. And I think that's where I'm going to end that story. Um, I, I don't know if you can tell or not. There was a hard edit there because I, I needed to take a, I needed to take a few minutes. Uh, telling stories about that period of time is difficult for me. Um, because like I said, uh, there's, there was a lot of fear and anger that, uh, I saw and I dealt with and, um, I know what I did was good. And I know that in a lot of those situations, I was, I was a good guy for those people, but, uh, it's still difficult, uh, to think about, uh, when you, when you've looked into, when you've looked into the heart of evil, and that's what I really do consider men like that, um, you, it, it can be difficult to find your way back out of it. And, uh, I think that it's important to tell those stories as dark and as scary and horrifying as they are. They are a reality of our world. And, and the reason why I want to tell those stories is because, um, I think that as long as we are able to stay, you know, one foot in, in reality and understand that these things happen and that, that there are people like this in the world, that it makes it that much more important for people to not be like that, right? Like, like to be the counter to that. For every man that there is like that, that is out there willing to take advantage of and to hurt innocent people, innocent women and innocent girls, there needs to be 10 that, that are willing to fight and willing to, to stop it. And if, the, if we can get to that point where men and women alike are willing to defend and willing to protect each other, then we're well on our way to a better world. But we're going to shift gears now, like I said. Uh, this is I'm going to read this quick story. This is a story that was submitted um, online. Um, it was a, a, a not, not actually an email. It was a message. Uh, so it is, it is re- relatively short, but um, I... I want to read it. I think that it's a good story. So, um, and I, I also just keep in mind, um, you can, anybody that listens to this, you can submit stories. They don't have to necessarily be, you know, great uplifting stories, but, but they can be just stories that have lessons in them and stories of, you know, a, a point in your life or stories of something like that, that will let the other people that listen know who you are and know something about you. I think this is a good example of that. This is not a story that necessarily has uh, a <laughs> ringing, uplifting message, but it is uplifting, and it is great to hear stories like this. So, uh, well, here we go. Uh, I've been listening to A Pebble on a Pond, and when he asked listeners to share stories, I decided to share a little, a little of my story as it relates to his messages. My parents had seven children, 
I was the middle child. They did the best they could with what they had. My mother always seemed stressed raising a brood of kids, doing household work, and usually holding down a full-time job. My father was an amazing man, but he was an alcoholic. We never knew if he would be happy or mean when he was drunk, when he was drunk. So when he drank, which was every weekend, we walked on eggshells, never knowing who we would who he would go after if he was pissed. I was married twice. Both men were alcoholics, mental and physical abusers, liars and cheaters. I've skipped a lot of details, but suffice it to say these situations left me scarred, mostly from the husbands. After living with them, I had absolutely no self-esteem. I was told I was crazy, stupid, boring, ugly, and worthless. I believed it had to be true, otherwise why would they cheat on me and treat me so horribly? I didn't cheat on them, although I was accused of it a lot. The podcasts talking about being nice and kind, honest and empathetic, got me thinking that I was all of those things most of the time, and still am. I believe I was that way because those traits attracted attention to me, and as a middle child and neglected wife, I really really needed attention. I didn't love myself, though. It's really hard. Uh, it's that's a really hard one to do, even for people who portray themselves as egomaniacs. The catalyst to get to a point of caring about myself was my children and music. Nothing in my life has brought me as much joy as those two things. Now I have to note here that my kids weren't always perfect angels, far from it. But we've had some good times, like Music Sundays, where we'd play just a few notes of a song using a turntable and actual vinyl records and we'd see who could guess the song the fastest. One of us would man the turntable while the others would do the guessing. That would go on for hours. We went to a lot of concerts and movies. We played with our dogs and cats together and we laughed until we cried. That joy made me understand that I was a good person. I was worthwhile and I could love myself and take care of myself so I could keep enjoying what inspires me. I look forward to more podcasts, more inspiration, straight talk, and more love. That is, uh, that is a very, um, it's a very good thing to read from me. Um, I, I very, very much appreciate that. Um, I, it, it makes me, uh, proud and happy to know that these couple of episodes that I've done uh, have at least touched somebody uh, enough that they took the time to write that and share their story. Um, it is, um, it's difficult to hear. I mean, I, we all know everybody that hears this, everybody that follows me on TikTok. Uh, everybody knows that, you know, we're all going through some shit, right? Like it's, the world is not always great. We're always going through some sort of really bad shit in our lives. But when you read that or when you hear that, you realize that, you know, a lot of times the the pain and the anguish that we feel is something that is dropped on us by other people. And, you know, there are many people in this world that go through life 
living, I don't want to say the right way, because that sounds pompous, but living the way that you would hope most people would want to live. You know, living a, a life that is peaceful and full of love and light. And those people oftentimes are the the magnets that draw the worst out of people. And that's not fair. And it's, it, it certainly isn't right. But unfortunately, uh, you know, they say hurt people hurt people. And it's very hard for somebody that is damaged and really fucked up in the head to, um, to hurt somebody who's already damaged, right? They need to find these, these good people and ruin them. Uh, and I believe that that's the, that's the situation there is, you know, you have somebody that genuinely just had a love for life and saw the good in people. And that's what ended up, uh, allowing these two husbands to, uh, not take advantage of, but to, um, put, put her in a position to, uh, be abused really uh she just wanted to believe so much in the goodness of these men and she saw what they could be she saw the potential and at some point in time that potential it got to the point where it was never going to be realized and all of the burden that she had bared in in service of that potential just became that much heavier because she knew that it was never, you know, she, they were never going to reach that potential. And I think that a lot of people can relate to that. I think a lot of people can, can speak to that and say, you know, I, I really thought that this person was going to be better. I really thought that this person was going to, you know, be the light in my life and that they were going to be there forever. They were going to be there you know, next to me on my dying day, you know, that's, that's the kind of, that's the kind of thing that you, you think about when you love somebody and even when they're mean to you and even when they hurt you and even when they cheat on you and even when they treat you badly, um, you know, you hold on to that and you try to fight through it until you can't anymore. And the reality is, is that, you know, we all are, trying to hold on to these people. We're trying to make them achieve what we know they can be. And unfortunately, especially in this case with this particular letter, you know, that those those reclamation projects of trying to bring those men into the light, um, that's that's not a one person job. And and if they have no interest in getting better, if they have no interest in healing and growing and being better people and better men then there's nothing that any woman can do to help them and that goes the other way as well um you know personally I, i've seen it as, as a man I, I have i have seen it you know up close and personal you know, women aren't aren't exactly immune from this men are just a little bit more self-absorbed usually so a lot of times they're too stupid to realize that they're doing anything wrong and that's why some of them can be saved that's why some of them can be changed and some of them, their eyes can be opened to the damage that they're causing. Uh, I speak from personal experience, 
you know, you can, you can spend years hurting somebody and not even realize you're doing it as a man, because if somebody doesn't come right out and tell you that you're doing it, you'll never know, you know, and in, this is coming from a man. I'm, I am not a typical man in most regards. I am extremely emotional and extremely in touch with the people around me and extremely empathetic. But, um, you know, even me, if I, if I feel something and then I go to you and you say, are you okay? And you shrug and say, yes, I'm okay. Or I say, is this a problem? And then you say, yes, or no, that's not a problem. Then I'm going to believe you because I'm going to always believe the person that I love over, you know, whatever this gut feeling is. And that's, that's my fault. And that's the, something that I've got to work on like following my instincts. But you know, when you, when you're with somebody like this letter describes that is a, a liar and a cheater and a, you know, a swindler. Um, well, I can't say that cause I'm kind of a swindler, but, uh, you know, when you're, when you're talking about people like that, the, the mistake that we all make at the end of the day is trusting and believing in people that have not earned or, or have proven that they, you should not trust those people. So that's that story. Um, we're gonna, we're gonna move into a happy one. I know that both of those were a little weighty and I apologize for that. Um, but you know, sometimes story time is, is a great epic of, you know, knights and dragons. And sometimes it's just a simple story of what really happens in the real world and how we deal with it. Before we start with this next, and this is going to be a quick one because I'm already way over time where I wanted to be. But before we start this next one, I I do want to share this quote because this made me uh, feel really good about this, uh, doing these story time episodes. Uh, I don't know this person. I don't know who she is, but this is from uh, Lisa Cron, who uh, wrote a, uh, an, oh, I guess an article for the magazine Wired. And she said, story, as it turns out, was crucial to our evolution, more so than opposable thumbs. Opposable thumbs let us hang on, but story told us what, is hang, what, told us what to hang on to. I think that that's a beautifully, well, if I read it better, uh, beautifully uh, illustrated point about how important it is to tell these stories. And one of the reasons why I'm trying desperately to get people to send me stories is because it's really easy to lose sight of what we've done in our lives. And it's really easy to forget that each of us is a story. Like each of us has a story to tell, you know, going back to the previous episode about the main character. One of the points that I tried to make in that episode, and I hope that if you've listened to it, you took away from that is that we really are all main characters in our own stories. Now, does that mean that you're the only one that matters? Absolutely not. Don't be like that. But it does mean that, you know, someday we're all going to die and our story is what's going to be left of us. So tell it, tell your story. And it doesn't really matter what it is. Sometimes it can be a, you know, a 40 minute tale of having to stop sexual predators. And sometimes it can just be a quick story detailing who you are and where you came from. It doesn't have to be, there's no one way of doing it. There's no one 
method of getting your story out into the world, but it is important to tell it. And it is important that people know who you are, even if they don't know your name. Speak your story. Tell your truth. I think that that's the way that we are remembered. And that is the thing, like she says in this quote, that's the thing that we hold on to. That's the reason why we are who we are as a people. We moved forward. Evolution was possible because of our storytelling. It gave us a reason to keep going in the night. So just remember that. Now, this this next story is a quick one. I'm not going to hold you up for too long. But this is a story of one of the greatest kindnesses that anyone has ever shown me. And I'm not going to I'm not going to give full details on uh this whole thing because uh some of the people well, one of the people involved in in this story uh is uh let's just say not happy with me. So, uh I'm going to try to keep it a little a little loosey-goosey. But um let's just say that um some years ago uh I was in a pretty dark place, um, as, as detailed in my TikTok, and I'm sure you guys have, have picked up on some of my stories here, uh, I, I have suffered from, uh, really, really, like, powerful depression for the greater part of two decades, and while I am on the other side of it, I am not completely out of it, but I do feel better now than I have in a long, long time. About... I want to say about 15 or 16 years ago, um, I had a person come into my life that was um, what I needed at that point in time was a beacon of light in my life. And um, one of the reasons why that person was so important to me was the fact that they were so um, giving and so uh, warm in like every regard just just was always there with a hug or a kind word or you know whatever it was that that I needed at the time and I was like I said I was extremely depressed and uh wasn't really getting that that feeling from from anyone else in my life at the time so this person came into my life and uh for you know many months uh was was this this beacon of hope and inspiration for me little did i know that 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 emotion and that love and that uh warmth that i felt would end up having a very physical representation um and what i mean by that is uh i don't remember it was an it was in october and i don't remember the year exactly but it was in october and uh my daughter had wanted to go to the pet store to get some fish uh, we had we had recently got her a, a fish tank um, in September. We had gotten her a fish tank, and she wanted to get some more fish for the fish tank. So we went to this pet store, and um, we, you know, she was we were basically just letting her go find stuff. And in the process of that, I, uh, you know, was just walking around the pet store. And they had, this was a pet store that, that doesn't exist anymore, but they, they did do like the puppies and the kittens and all that stuff. And um, so I would sit there and I would look at the puppies and play with the kittens and stuff. Well, I come across this one little glass box and there's 
um, there, I think there were three kittens in it. Well, you know, they were they were ragdolls. They were little baby ragdoll kittens, and they were if I when I tell you they were the most stinking adorable things on the planet. I'm I can't possibly. I mean, woo! I just wanted to kiss them, and uh, so I'm sitting there playing with one. They had little holes, like little air holes in the side of the glass, and so I'm sitting there putting my finger in, playing with the one, and then I see there were only, I could only see two at the time. And there was the, like a little blanket or something in there. And I see this blanket kind of moving. I'm like, oh, there's another one in there. And I see this little head poke up and look at me. And in that instant, uh, I, it's hard to describe. There was almost more than immediate. Um, uh, instantaneously, uh, I knew that that kitten was my kitten. And I really do believe that that kitten knew that I was its human. Uh, it really was that that quick. Um, and I just, I fell, I was completely and totally in love. I, there was just no, no ifs, ands, or buts. I had to have this kitten in my life. And as I sat there looking at him, I, you know, I put my finger through the little hole and he immediately comes running up. I mean, he's just come out of a full sleep you know, little kitten sleep, and comes running up, and was so excited, and rubbing, and loving, and um, I couldn't have been more in love with anything or anyone at that point in time, and uh, that's when the reality of the situation hits me square in the face, which was, this was a $600 cat. Now, before anybody gets upset, I, I am very much a, you know, don't buy pets at a pet store person. Uh, I have I have very many cats. I have very many dogs. And none of them were purchased. All of them were rescues. That being said, none of them ever meant as much to me as this cat did in that moment. So, I don't have $600. I didn't... I, at the time, I was... I was trying to run my business and, and it wasn't su succeeding and I, I was just didn't, I didn't have that money and I was heartbroken. I just was just, just destroyed. Well, as I said, we were there to get fish for my daughter and this person that I had mentioned before, um, she was there and, uh, she, she was actually, it was actually her idea. She was going to buy the fish for her and, um, she, you know, I, I, I went up to her and I was like, you have to see this cat. You have to see this cat. You, you know, oh my God, you know, you've got to see him. So I go over and, uh, so I bring her and everybody else over to, uh, see this cat. And I mean, obviously they're not, they're not picking up the vibe, right? They know that I, I want this kitten and they know that I, you know, I'm really excited about him, but like, they're not getting the same feeling that I am from this kitten but I'm I'm desperate I'm like we, we got to find a way I've got to I've got to get this cat I've got to so this person um she she I don't I can't really say I, I understand it at the time she wasn't you know rich or anything like that she didn't have a lot of money but she just knew that I needed this kitten like she understood what I was saying I don't know if she necessarily believed the way that I did, but she knew what I was saying. She believed in what I was saying. And she said, you know, well, let me see what I can do. Now, this is a person that at the time was like waitressing, 
right? Like she didn't, she didn't have a lot of money, but, um, she, <laughs> I just thinking about it, just, you know, it kind of makes me emotional just thinking about it. But, um, she basically went and talked to the people and they said, well, the, this, this pet store, you can get, you know, a credit card for this pet store or whatever. That was a national chain at the time. I, I don't think they exist anymore, but, um, you could, you could get a credit card and I guess she had good enough credit that she qualified. So she actually ended up taking out a, like getting a credit card for this pet store. Um, and like putting herself in credit debt basically to be able to buy me this $600 purebred ragdoll kitten that I, you know, had had this religious experience with. And, <laughs> I remember them coming over and being like, well, do you want to take him out of the thing and hold him and stuff like that? And I was like, well, yes, of course I do, but I don't need to. Like, I already know this is my cat. Like, you don't... And they're like, okay. And they thought I was kind of weird. But, you know, they they took him out of the little thing and they brought him to me. And he immediately curled up on my shoulder and uh, really just never left. Um, so... Uh, she she goes ahead and she takes out the the credit card, and they end up uh, putting him on this line of credit that she ended up having to pay off over the course of like a year or something like that. She didn't, I mean, like I said, she wasn't making a whole lot of money. But this was one of the greatest gifts that anyone has ever given me, and one of the greatest kindness that anyone has ever shown me. She really put herself out there, and in doing that, I, I it's hard to it's hard to describe how much of a difference this made in my life. Like it literally changed everything in my life from that point forward. I, I ended up going through quite a bit, uh, over the, the next so, so many years. And there were plenty of times where that little cat who I ended up naming Yoda, where that little Yoda literally saved my life over and over and over again. And the, the, the really beautiful thing about that was that every time I would have that moment or there would be a moment with him, which was every day, uh, because every moment we spent together was magical for me. Like I literally had a, a familiar that I, you know, he never left my side. He was always with me. He would be on my shoulder. He would go get in the car with me. I would take him to work. I mean, this was a cat that was with me all the time. This wasn't just like a pet that I kept at home. And, uh, every single time that I would have to go through something bad or there would be a dark point, he would be there with me. And in a way that meant that she was there with me. And that, that really was a very, very, very special, uh, gift and a very special way of conveying like love and, and what somebody means to you. Now, I know, obviously, there's a dollar sign attached to that, so maybe it cheapens it a little bit, but you're talking about a life, like literally bringing a life into my into my world. I mean, Yoda was my baby um, and w- w- literally was the most important thing to me um, for a long time. And my kids, you know, that maybe that fucked them up a little bit. My kids knew, like, Yoda was number one. He was my baby. Now, obviously, that doesn't mean I would throw my kids under a bus for Yoda, but it, it doesn't mean that, you know, they knew that if Yoda wasn't comfortable, nobody got to be comfortable. 
So that was that was just one of the one of the rules. I ended up ended up losing Yoda some years ago. Um, so it's not all you know happy endings, and the loss of him echoes even now. But uh, the time that we did have, as short as it was, um, it was beautiful and wonderful and tragic and everything that a good love story should be. And as much as, you know, as much as I want to say that it was just about this kitten, when a lot of it was, it was also, you know, the story of me and this person. Because when you show somebody that kind of kindness, when you show somebody that kind of care and that kind of concern, it will echo for eternity. And they'll always remember that. So just remember that as you move through life. Sometimes it's a grand gesture, like bringing a kitten into somebody's life. Sometimes it's as simple as holding somebody's door. But all of these things that we do and all of these choices that we make have a long-lasting impact and will cause ripples that change everything in the world around us. So there's a reason why we call it a pebble in a pond. And there's a reason why I really do believe that if I can get enough people on board with this, that we can really make a difference in this world. And it's because I can't sit here and tell this story about my cat without getting emotional, without tears coming to my eyes. And when I think about the cat, I think about that person. And the level of kindness and compassion and care that goes into taking on a financial burden like that uh, just because somebody says, I feel connected to this kitten. I need this kitten in my life. There's not a lot of people out there that would have done that. Actually, I don't know anybody else that would have done that. Um, so just just remember that you don't have to have that grand gesture to make a difference in somebody's life. But if you can, you should. Because the, it, it will you could very well be changing the course of not just that person's life, but the course of all history. You just don't know. You don't know what your kindness and what your love can do, but it will move mountains and it will change the world. I, I, I think it was Anne Frank that said, no one has ever become poor by giving. And I think that that's what we're going to, we're going to leave this episode on our next episode is actually going to come out um on christmas eve uh if everything goes right this weekend and i think we're going to talk about christmas i think that's going to be the uh, topic of um of that that episode uh in in not just not just christmas but what the christmas season means to people both good and bad um i do i do want to keep this on a you know, on a positive note, but we also need to discuss, you know, as somebody who's dealt with depression and things like that, we do need to discuss that part of it. And, um, so we will, we'll touch on that and, uh, we'll, maybe we'll tell a couple of Christmas stories that, uh, that will give some people some positive feelings, uh, going into their Christmas day. Um, anyway, 
that's where we are folks thanks for coming along for story time and i really do appreciate those of you that have listened and uh, continue to listen to all of the episodes um i don't i don't necessarily see all the analytics so i don't necessarily know who's listening to what but um you know, I'm building this thing from the ground up, and I'm start trying to learn every step of the way. And so whatever feedback or criticism or, you know, words of encouragement and advice you may have, I appreciate all of them. Um, if you haven't followed me on TikTok yet, uh, it's Pebble in a Pond Podcast on TikTok. Uh, I, I invite you to follow me there. We also have a link tree, um, which I think is posted on most of our pages, but... Um, that should point you to any of the other socials we have. We do have an Instagram that I'm still bu- building. Uh, we have a, a YouTube channel, which I'm still working on. Uh, all of these things are works in progress, but we are trying to get out there. We're trying to get the message out there of what I'm trying to build here and what we're trying to do. This community that I really do want to uh, build and engage with and start to really make some big changes. Um, so there you have it. Thanks again. And uh, y'all... Take care of yourselves and take care of each other. Have a good day.